0: Good evening. evening. Excuse me? Good evening. evening. Welcome to the James Baldwin Lecture. I am Eddie Glaude. I'm the chair of the Center for African American Studies. And I believe I can speak for all of our faculty uh, that we are delighted you have joined us on this special evening. Let me first thank the wonderful staff of the Center, uh, Noliwe Rooks. Carla Haley Penn, April Peters, Kai Latelaw, and Jennifer Losey. Jennifer, in particular, who fell ill, but she's the source of all this in some ways. They told me not to mention them, but I had to anyway. So much is happening in the center um, as we build on the vision of past directors and expand our footprint as a resource for the nation. Today, for example, we are pleased to announce the launch of our redesigned website. Uh, The website is more interactive, has enhanced search capabilities. It features our faculty and offers ways to shape content of public conversation. We have in the works CAS Twitter and CAS Facebook. We've included in your programs a brief description of the new design. We also want to introduce you to CAS walking partners. Walking partners are those alumni and friends who join us in our effort to fulfill the mission of the Center for African American Studies. Each partner brings his or her unique skill set to this task. They support through their time, their networks and ideas, all of the major initiatives that define the crucial work of the center. We invite you to join our efforts. And on the back of that card in your programs, we show you how to become a walking partner. With the Center for African American Studies. As you can see, a lot is going on in CAS with our world class faculty, amazing classes, and our stated aim our stated aim to equip each Princeton student with the critical skills to navigate meaningfully and morally a diverse world. CAS exemplifies Princeton's commitment to a genuine liberal arts education. Now a true liberal arts education involves a journey beyond the immediate horizons that have shaped our beliefs and choices. It unsettles us, disrupting the familiar as it offers new pathways for self-creation. Indeed, a liberal education that takes seriously African-American studies aims to forge the kinds of dispositions that extend beyond our more parochial concerns. It aspires, yes, aspires, for a cosmopolitan reach, where our frames of acceptance, that's Kenneth Burke's phrase, are widened. Princeton has committed itself to the idea that African-American studies should be understood as central to a liberal arts education, not as a site for folks to feel good about themselves, not as a duplication of some easy form of identity politics, but central to a Princeton student's self-imagining. I have the extraordinary honor and privilege to introduce the person behind such a powerful vision of education. Shirley M. Tillman, was elected president, Princeton University's 19th president on May 5th, 2001, after serving on our faculty for 15 years as the Howard A. Pryor Professor of the Life Sciences. She is a world-renowned scholar and leader in the field of molecular biology, making a number of groundbreaking discoveries while participating in cloning, yes, I said cloning, the first mammalian gene. She was the founding director of Princeton's Lewis Sigler Institute for Integrative Genomics and has received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Society of Developmental Biology. President President Tillman has indeed labored in the vineyard and has used her national leadership on behalf of women in science and for promoting efforts to make the early careers of young scientists as meaningful and as productive as possible. Her practice always extends towards a future as yet unrealized. A testament to the power of her imagination and the loveliness of her heart. In 2006, she inaugurated the Center for African American Studies. In a time when many universities and colleges were downsizing their departments and programs, President Tillman announced Princeton's commitment to the field and it is under her visionary leadership that Princeton is now charting the trajectory of African American studies in the 21st century. Even that other institution, somewhere in Cambridge, <laughs> recognized her this year with this year's W.E.B. Du Bois Medal for Leadership in African American Studies. Her practice reveals a willingness to do what is right and the wisdom of judgment. In reflecting on our refusal to talk publicly about the scandal of race in American life, James Baldwin wrote in Many Thousands Gone, quote, as the inevitable result of things unsaid, we find ourselves until today oppressed with a dangerous and reverberating silence. And the story is told compulsively in symbols and signs in hieroglyphics, end quote. Our task this evening is to break the spell of such incantations and to listen to one of our own as she reflects on the meaning of race in a post-genome era. Please join me in welcoming Sister President Shirley M. Till.
1: Evening, everyone. Good evening. All right, let's try again. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. All right, now we're talking. Now we're talking. I want to thank all of you for coming this evening uh, and for uh, participating in this conversation that uh, the Center for African American Studies has. Uh, generated for opportunities for this campus to talk together about the meaning of race. I want to thank Eddie, my good friend Eddie Glott for that lovely lovely introduction and to tell him that it is an honor to have been asked to give the Baldwin lecture named as he said for James Baldwin, one of the foremost African-American writers of the 20th century and a leading participant in the struggle for racial equality in the United States. Now some may wonder why a man who never went to college should be associated with a lecture at an institution that almost certainly would have discouraged his application had he applied for admission in 1942. But this is 2010 and much, albeit not enough, has changed since Mr. Baldwin famously said, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. Reflecting on his childhood, Mr. Baldwin noted, I didn't know how I would use my mind, or even if I could, but that was the only thing I had to use. Well, use it he did. His novels, essays, plays, and other work reflect an intellectual power, a moral independence, and a capacity to invest the written word with force and meaning that are truly remarkable. And that, after all, is the essence of our mission as a university community, to seek and to speak the truth, and to see our world, ourselves, and most importantly, others, with a clearer eye. With the establishment of the Center for African American Studies at Princeton, we committed this university to studying and teaching the meaning of race and its impact on the past, present, and the future suffused throughout our entire curriculum. We purposefully, as Eddie said, rejected a plan that would have relegated race to one or two isolated departments or programs. Only by spreading conversations about race throughout the entire university can we be sure that every student who passes through our gates will encounter and grapple with one of the most vexing issues facing our country and indeed the rest of the world. Whether these encounters happen in a sociology class on inequality or in a literature class that's reading the novels of Toni Morrison, or by examining historical documents on the Civil War, or while participating in a jazz ensemble, or acting in a play by August Wilson, or studying African art in the museum, or upon confronting the strands of American religious thought, or in discussing global immigration policy, or even, indeed, in a genetics course on human diversity, Our students need to examine and refine their own ideas about identity if they are to be fully educated men and women. True cosmopolitans, to use Anthony Appiah's word. I'm deeply grateful to those who created this vision for Princeton, Anthony Appiah and the members of his original task force, and to Valerie Smith and Eddie Glaude the extraordinary leaders who realized that vision so brilliantly and in such a short period of time. The Baldwin Lecture was inaugurated in 2006 with Anthony's lecture on the cosmopolitanism of W.E.B. Du Bois. It's very much in the spirit of the mission of the Center for African-American Studies. It invites faculty members from across all divisions of the university to reflect on the issue of race in American culture. I am very honored to be asked to follow in the footsteps of Anthony Appiah, Leonard Barkin, Bonnie Bassler, and Tony Grafton, surely four of the brightest jewels in the Princeton crown, honored and a little intimidated. Now the topic, as you can see, that I have chosen for my lecture is the meaning of race in the post-genome era. Of course, I'm already off to a rocky start with that title. Just as there are deep differences of opinion about whether the election of President Obama ushered in a new post-racial era in the United States, there is disagreement among scientists as to whether the publication of the first draft sequence of the human genome in 2001 constituted a turning point in biology that is worthy of being called a new era. Without taking a stand on that particular question, I would like to explore with you whether the sequencing of the human genome and the many studies that have followed in its wake to collect sequence information from humans across the globe have provided us with any new insights into the meaning of race. Now this is not the first time that scientists have been asked to weigh in on the existence and the significance of racial categories. And I'm sorry to have to say that too often, when science has been brought to bear on the issue, the outcome has not led to enlightenment. One of the earliest, let me see if I can do, yeah, whoop, whoop, there we go. One of the earliest scientists to opine about racial categories was the great 18th century Swedish taxonomist Carl Linnaeus. Trained as a physician and motivated by a religious conviction that there was a natural order to all things in the universe, Linnaeus is best known for his system of classification of plants and animals. He did not stop with the animal world but offered a classification system for humans that divided them into five categories that were based on a combination of geography and skin color, homo sapiens africanus, americanus, asiaticus, europeanus, and monstrosus. He described Native Americans as red, choleric, and combative. Africans as black, cunning, and negligent. Asians as yellow, melancholic, and stingy. And Europeans as white, sanguine, and inventive, and inclined toward tight clothing. (laughs) In general, he did not seem to have a high opinion of any race save his own. As for Homo sapiens monstrosus, they included dwarfs, giants, troglodytes, and lazy Patagonians. You cannot make this stuff up. Now Linnaeus's profound error was to conflate race with character, making sweeping generalizations about the traits of categories of peoples based on prejudice rather than careful observation or measurement. This unscientific leap that attached moral values and behavioral characteristics to geographical and skin color differences would persist for centuries and survive at least in part because it could hide behind the mantle of scientific credibility. Linnaeus' classification system of humans lacked quantitative rigor, to say the least. The generations of scientists that followed him attempted to bring measurement into the study of human classifications, but they, like Linnaeus, were unable to escape their biases and prejudices. Phrenology, a field of inquiry founded by the Viennese physician Franz Joseph Gall in the late 18th century, argued that the brain was the organ of the mind. Recall that there was no consensus on this for much of recorded history. Gall went further to suggest that the brain is composed of multiple distinct regions that house a variety of functions, such as sight, hearing, and memory. Up to this point, even a 21st century neuroscientist would agree with Gall where Gaul began to go seriously wrong was in claiming that both moral and intellectual capacities of the brain are innate and that human characteristics such as love of one's offspring, courage, murderousness, metaphysical sensibility, witticism, poetical ability, and obstinacy can be mapped to specific regions of the brain and that's what's represented by the cartoon on the right. Even more problematically, he proposed that by examining the shape, size, and unevenness of the skull, one could discover how well each of these faculties, he called them, was developed in any one individual. A bump on the forehead foretold a well-developed organ of a generous person, one at the back of the head was a sure sign of a murderous personality. Now phrenology spread throughout 19th century Europe and traveled across the Atlantic as well with practitioners profiting royally from skull readings of the gullible, including such luminaries as Johann Wolfgang von Goethe and the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George. Even a figure, as scientifically sophisticated as Francis Galton, the founder of eugenics, consulted a phrenologist before venturing on a journey to Southern Africa. His phrenologist advised him that he possessed a sanguine temperament with considerable self-will, self-regard, and no small share of obstinacy. Presumably hearing those qualities gave him the courage to set forth on his travels. Now phrenology might have passed into history as an amusing and largely harmless fad, a 19th century version of astrology, had it not been for its inevitable use as a tool to discriminate against the Irish in Britain and across the Atlantic to justify the institution of slavery. Two of the most influential proponents of the American school of phrenology were the brothers Orson and Lorenzo Fowler, whose books were widely read throughout the middle of the 19th century in this country. Based on readings of head shape, they concluded as follows. The European race possesses a much larger endowment of the organs than other human species. And here they were referring to the frontal and coronal positions of the head and the brain. Hence their intellectual and moral superiority over all races. In making such assertions, the phrenologists betrayed the most fundamental principle of the scientific method, as did the craniometrists who used brain size rather than skull shape and surface structure to draw sweeping conclusions about innate qualities of groups of humans. Here's their profound mistake. They began with their conclusion, the superiority of the European or Caucasian people, and then set about seeking data that would confirm that conclusion. As the evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould demonstrated in his debunking of craniometry in his classic book, The Mismeasure of Man, the data were fudged to fit the prejudice such as by selecting a preponderance of large skulls while making measurements about favored races, and a preponderance of small ones when measuring those thought to be of lesser ability. Now, the next chapter in the history of applying scientific understanding to the meaning of race was the eugenics movement in 19th century Britain. Its founder, Sir Francis Galton, was trained as a physician in England, but was a true polymath who became a pioneer in the use of statistics to quantify human traits. A cousin of Charles Darwin, Galton was deeply influenced by the publication of On the Origin of the Species, Darwin's great book, and the evolutionary theory of natural selection he became fascinated with the possibility of improving the human race by encouraging what geneticists called assortative mating, marriages between ever more fit individuals leading over time to the elimination of the weak and infirm from the population. In his book, Hereditary Genius, published in 1869, Galton argued that just as farmers have been improving the stock of their crops and domesticated animals for millennia by selective breeding programs, it was feasible to improve the human species by applying those same principles to individuals of high social standing and demonstrated trait. So here you see uh, a, a young woman rejecting her suitor until he shows up with a eugenics certificate that will prove that he is worthy of uh, mixing her genes with his genes. Dalton's ideas regarding fitness were more about social class than race. He believed that genius and talent were hereditary traits, basing his conclusion on the observation that distinguished Victorians, statesmen, military commanders, scientists, poets, and jurists were more likely than not to be related to one another. Although he would at times acknowledge the impact the societal and environmental conditions could have on a person's success in life, he rejected the notion that the strict class system in Britain could explain the familial relatedness of the professional elite, asserting that men, and they were inevitably men in those days, of great distinction must have the benefit of a richer genetic inheritance. To his credit, he never proposed the kinds of draconian steps that were all ultimately taken up in the United States or Germany to improve the human stock. Instead, he believed that the gradual improvement of the human species could be achieved by the state providing financial incentives to encourage early marriages and many offspring among people of high rank. Now when the science of eugenics crossed the Atlantic, it acquired a much nastier veneer. Eugenics was used between the First and Second World Wars to justify state-sanctioned prohibitions against reproduction on the part of the physically disabled and what were then termed the feeble-minded, as well as immigration and miscegenation laws to preserve the purity of the white race. One of its earliest and most influential proponents was Charles Davenport, a biologist who founded the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in 1910 and established the Eugenics Records Office there. Like Galton, Davenport was interested in quantifying human traits of all kinds. And you can see in the picture to uh, the right, the measurement of human beings by the eugenics record office. But unlike Galton, he had the great advantage of exposure early in his career to the rediscovery of Mendel's laws of inheritance. Unfortunately, there is little evidence that he benefited from that exposure. As he consistently deeply commingled science and social values with race as the touchstone, as the geneticist Maynard Olson pointed out in a recent article entitled Davenport's Dream. The second of Mendel's laws of inheritance states that genes assort independently of one another, that a trait such as skin color, is not inherited in the same pattern in multi-generational family pedigrees as another trait such as height. Yet Davenport not only ignored this well-established principle in his studies, but also went one step further by claiming that complex traits such as high intelligence or personality characteristics such as slovenliness followed simple inheritance patterns that were linked to the color of one's skin. He was blinded by his racial biases, attributing lack of fitness to low social status and what he termed poor racial origins. In defending his view that immigration policies should bar people of low hereditary history, Davenport wrote, the idea of a melting pot belongs to a pre-Mendelian age Now we recognize that characters are inherited as units and do not readily break up. Davenport ignored his own data, which clearly showed that the very traits that he abhorred, imbecilic, criminalistic, insane, epileptic, alcoholic, sexually immoral, were not inherited as simple units, displayed no simple pattern of inheritance, and were greatly influenced by environmental factors. As the historian Dan Kevles writes in his very fine book on the subject in the name of eugenics, although eugenics was advanced with the authority and prestige attendant on one of America's most powerful biology directorships, it proceeded from science that even by the standards of his day was usually dubious and often plain wrong. Davenport had his scientific detractors, including Francis Galton himself, and Thomas Hunt Morgan of Columbia University, the founder of modern genetics in the United States. Yet the influence of Davenport and his acolytes was widespread, with eugenics used as a justification for state-sanctioned sterilization of the unfit in over half the states in the Union through much of the first half of the 20th century. Likewise, the Immigration Act of 1924, written primarily to exclude those of Eastern and Southern European background, was clearly inspired by eugenic considerations. President Calvin Coolidge publicly declared at the time of the passage of that act, America must be kept American. Biological laws show that Nordics deteriorate when mixed with other races. It was only repugnance over the genocide practiced by Nazi Germany during World War II, which of course had deep eugenic roots, that finally the public tide turned against such racially motivated practices. Now I've dwelled on this history of the scientific study of racial classifications for a reason. It highlights the perils they confront scientists when they venture into a terrain where one's objectivity, or more accurately, lack of objectivity, can play a role in the pursuit of scientific meaning. What Linnaeus, Gall, Galton, and Davenport have in common and recall that several of them were considered scientific giants in their time, was deep-seated racial prejudice that biased the way in which they framed their questions, designed their studies, and analyzed their data. It would be imprudent for us to think that such biases cannot creep into our thinking about race in the post-genome era. So now to turn to the current era. The idea of sequencing the human genome was first suggested in the mid-1980s. The rationale for doing so combined high purpose with pragmatism. The high purpose was often described in florid language. The genome was the blueprint of life, the instruction manual of a human being. Once all those A's, G's, C's, and T's were properly interpreted, it would reveal the parts list that make up a human, the genes that are embedded in the DNA of our 23 pairs of chromosomes. Those genes encode the workhorses of the body, the thousands of proteins and RNA molecules that are the molecules of life. And the sequence would be a treasure trove of information for biomedical scientists intent upon using genetic data to find treatments and cures for human disease. On the pragmatic side, many scientists around the world were already sequencing the human genome, slowly, labor-intensively, and very expensively, gene-by-gene in small, individual, investigator-led labs. At the going rate in the 1980s, The human genome would have taken hundreds of years and many billions of dollars to sequence. So it was argued, and my colleague David Botstein and I were part of the small group that made this argument, that a concerted effort that focused on improving technology, speeding up the process, and bringing the cost down dramatically, it was conceivable that we could have the entire sequence in 10 to 15 years. And that is precisely what happened. With the infusion of significant federal dollars to develop better sequencing technology and a decade practicing on organisms with smaller genomes like bacteria, yeast, worms, and fruit flies, the sequencing of the human genome became a reality. But whose genome would be sequenced? At the outset, Nobody thought about this question very much. And the first DNA templates that were readied for sequencing came from a small number of graduate students at Caltech, where the DNA libraries were being prepared. When it dawned on those of us overseeing the project in the late 1990s that the identities of those students and their DNA sequences would be in the public domain, and therefore available for anybody, including their insurance companies, for analysis. It was decided that those DNA libraries would have to be scrapped and reconstructed using a collection of DNAs from anonymous volunteers. Critics immediately pointed out that because the volunteers came from Buffalo, New York, where the new libraries were being prepared, they would represent only a subset of the genetic diversity in the human species and therefore the knowledge gained would privilege one group over another. Now there were compelling technical reasons to sequence as few individuals as possible, but in the end the argument was resolved when it was pointed out that this was going to be the first, but surely not the last genome to be sequenced, as indeed this has proven to be the case. But this was not the first time that race became a contentious issue for the Human Genome Project. In 1991, a group of American human geneticists proposed a global effort to sample the degree of genetic diversity of all human populations, which they called the Human Diversity Project. Their goal was to collect DNA samples from indigenous populations throughout the world and to analyze them to understand the evolution of the species, to map historical migration patterns, and to begin to catalog the relationships between disease susceptibility and genetic makeup, all laudatory goals. Nevertheless, from the outset, this project was met with blistering criticism, with accusations of racism, genetic colonialism, intellectual property theft, which took the organizers frankly completely by surprise. As Kenneth Kidd of Johns Hopkins, one of the founding members of the project, said in Science Magazine at the time, we're not trying to exploit people, we're trying to include them. It's racist to avoid the totality of humans. The opponents were deeply offended by what they perceived as the paternalism of the scientists and deeply suspicious that the project was simply a new eruption of racism and Western-style capitalism at work. In the end, the project was never funded, but the episode provided scientists with a glimpse of the enormous complexity that would attend the study of race in the context of the genome. The final push to sequence the human genome was a short one thanks to the dramatic improvements in the technology during the 1990s. And on June the 26, 2000, President Bill Clinton called a hasty press conference to announce the completion of the draft sequence by two separate groups, a private e- effort at Celera Genomics led by Craig Venter, he's the one who's smiling and a publicly funded international project represented in this picture by Francis Collins, then leading the the National Human Genome Institute. It was a euphoric moment for all who had participated in the project. But even at that moment of celebration, there was a sense that the genome could potentially open up a proverbial Pandora's box of issues particularly issues surrounding race. One of the most fundamental questions that the sequence was intended to answer is the genetic basis for the enormous variation within the human species. That amazing picture. Now when American Express brought these two extraordinary athletes together to take this picture, they only had one goal in mind, to catch your attention as you flip through a magazine. And I suspect the admin succeeded. For Will Chamberlain, arguably the greatest basketball player of all time, unless you hail from Chicago. And Willie Shoemaker, certainly the greatest jockey of his day capture a significant percentage of that variation in height, weight, body mass index, hair color and texture, skin color, taste and ties. (laughs) Yet, when a biologist looks at these two individuals, we are just as likely to see the marked similarities between Wilt and Willie. The identical organization of the body plan, with the bilateral symmetry of arms, legs, eyes, and the asymmetric design of the heart. We see identical biochemical processes driving everything from metabolism of food to reproduction. And it's my understanding that both of these men engaged in both quite liberally. (laughs) The tension between similarity and difference was also seen once we began to compare human genomes. Now, two human genomes chosen at random differ on average at only one in 1,000 to 1,500 bases. In other words, at the level of the genome, we are 99.9% identical to one another. Now, that discovery was not greeted with enthusiasm in all quarters, to be sure. For example, (laughs) there are at least two people who did not welcome that announcement. On the other hand, the human genome, remember, is composed of three billion base pairs. So 0.1% translates into two individuals differing by roughly three million bases, a non-trivial number of differences. Among the three million differences between Wilt and Willie are a relatively small number that are responsible for the dramatic phenotypic variation we see in the photograph. The majority are referred to as neutral changes Meaning they are thought to have no impact whatsoever on the phenotype of the individual. Now, of the 0.1% of the genome that varies among individuals, we now know that 85 to 90% of the variation is shared among all humans, and only 10 to 15% define differences between populations. In other words, and this is a very important part of this talk, if you take away nothing else, take away the next sentence. Differences between individuals are significantly greater than differences between groups. This striking fact reflects the now well-documented history of our species, which is shown in this slide. The first humans are thought to have arisen roughly 200,000 years ago, here in East Africa, and to have spent the first 150,000 years on the African continent itself, accumulating in their genomes the majority of the variation that we observe today. Variation works like a clock, so three-quarters of the time our species has existed, we were accumulating those differences in Africa. When a small number of individuals migrated out of Africa about 50 million years ago, creating what is known as a genetic bottleneck, they brought with them a small subset of that variation, leaving Africans as the most diverse humans today. As the early humans moved both east and west, here west towards Europe and east towards Asia, over time, new variants arose in each population that were unique to that group. This post-Africa variation accounts for the 10 to 15 percent of the total variation between populations today. Now as a consequence of the slow migration of homo sapiens across the planet, it is possible to differentiate among humans from widely dispersed geographic regions by assessing the 10 to 15 percent of the genetic variation that is region-specific. So in a study by Bamshad et al. at the University of Utah, DNAs were stripped of all ethnic and geographical identifiers and were assayed for 160 positions in the human genome that were known to be highly polymorphic, meaning that they are different in at least one in a hundred individuals between groups. The results from each individual were mapped on a triangle and I want you to first focus on this triangle on the left with the highest level and each one of these dots is a human in this study where the scientists did not know anything about that human other than how the humans DNA varied at these hundred and sixty polymorphic positions. And the green dots are Europeans, the red dots are Asians, and the blue dots are Africans. And where the dot lands on the triangle is a reflection of how accurately the scientists were able to predict their country of origin, or the region of origin. So the closer these dots are to the apex of the triangle, it means that the scientists could, with great certainty, high probability, predict that, for example, this individual right at the corner is of European descent. This individual up here is of African descent, Asian descent, and so on. So you can see that by choosing uh, individuals And again, these are individuals where the scientists did not know their uh, region of origin. They, there is, it is possible using this 10 to 15% that is different between groups to put the Europeans into um, one portion of this triangle, the Asians into another. And you can see, as I said to you a minute ago, the Africans are the most variable genetically of all the populations. And you can see that here by having uh, outliers. Now, in contrast, on the right, you can see that the predictive power of this method falls apart with South Asians, people from the um, subcontinent in in, uh, India. These are the yellow dots, and look what happened to the yellow dots. The yellow dots essentially are spread um, uh, uh, from uh, over here, uh, where the prediction would have been that they were Europeans, all the way across this middle zone, all the way over to the right hand side where the prediction uh, would have been that they are Asians. And you can see that a lot of them, there was very little ability to predict anything about uh, their country of origin. So why are they different? Well, the reason is that South Indians fall into a continuum genetically between Europeans and Asians. Not only were they on the path of migration east from Europe to Asia, because of their location between those two, they were most likely to have interbred along long expanses of time with their neighbors to the east and the west. And as a consequence, genetics has very little predictive ability to identify uh, their place of origin. This result highlights the first important finding of the post-genome era that pertains to race. The degree of human variation is a continuum across the globe, reflecting our migratory history. It is only when we compare populations that are geographically separated from one another and with whom little admixture has occurred do differences become sufficient to distinguish one group from another. The classic view of race, based on physical characteristics such as skin color and facial structure, would have placed South Asians, South Indians, in a distinct racial group. Yet the genome analysis here identifies them as a genetic amalgam. This is where the biological, as opposed to the cultural notion of race, does not hold up to close scrutiny. Now the second finding is that genetic distinctions among individuals that we continue to define as members of different races based on physical and cultural characteristics are declining rapidly, as is evident when Americans of Asian, European, and African descent are assayed in the same way, and that's what's shown down here. Uh, uh, Again, a a group of individuals, uh, identifiers stripped from them so the scientists knew nothing about uh, who these individuals were, were assayed using those same 160 markers in the genome. And you can see compared to individuals who are still uh, resident in Europe, Asia, or Africa, that the dots are beginning to move away from the apex of the triangle, and this is most evident. When you look at African Americans. Their movement away from the apex, uh, uh, particularly t- toward the European Americans, uh, is very evident and quite different than what you see if you are only looking at um, uh, if you are looking at uh, individuals who live on the continent of Africa. So what is immediately apparent in this panel is that each of the groups Um, For each of these groups, genetic analysis is less reliable in predicting their geographic origins than with indigenous populations. And again, the greatest decline occurring among African-Americans. The points have generally moved away from the corners, reflecting less confidence in the assignment of the individual to a specific group, almost certainly because of the intermarriage that has occurred over the last 300 years. The third finding is that positive selection, genetic variation that is beneficial and therefore strongly selected for an evolution when it arises in a population, can lead to marked changes in phenotype, appearance, without appreciable drift in genetic background. A very good example of this are the Ainu people of northern Japan, whose light skin and body hair have defined them as culturally and racially distinct from the rest of the Japanese, despite the fact that when they, they remain very closely related to other Japanese at the level of the genome. Thus, the sequencing of the human genome revealed, has revealed that the proxies we have historically used to define race, such as physical characteristics and geographical origins, are not irrelevant. The differences I just showed you um, clearly demonstrate that. And to a first approximation, they are reflected in distribution of genetic variation in our species. Yet any classification at the level of the genome needs to be much more nuanced as the distribution of genetic variation is continuous across the globe and admixture and positive selection make prognostications of genetic makeup based on outward appearance imprecise at best. So the challenge ahead is to understand the role that the 10 to 15% of genetic variation that is group specific has on human biology, solving the Wilton-Willie problem. While it is clear that individuals whose ancestors hail from different parts of the planet can be genetically distinguished from one another, we know almost nothing about how those differences translate into differences in biologically important characteristics. The reason is simple. Most of the complex human characteristics we might wish to understand, like susceptibility to common diseases, such as heart disease or stroke, or traits such as athleticism, aggressiveness, and especially intelligence, are the consequence of the action of many genes acting in concert, not single ones. And the tools we need for identifying and studying those genes are proving to be very, very elusive. Now there are scientists who foresee nothing but danger in the examination of complex human characteristics using genetic tools and would prefer that we ban studies where one can foresee the potential for discrimination against one group or another. Given the history that I have just relayed to you, there is good reason for that skepticism. But as a scientist, I find this proposal to be unrealistic and naive. As Maynard Olson said in his article about Davenport, history offers few examples in which scientists have been able to pluck selectively the bits of knowledge that would ultimately prove useful from a vast sea of ignorance. Fearful science is typically bad science. Furthermore, there are very good medical reasons for continuing to try to understand the consequences of genetic diversity in humans. Let me just give you one example. CCR5 is a protein that spans the membrane of blood cells called T cells and serves as a receptor for the HIV virus. Variants in this gene encoding the protein have been shown to slow, or in some cases, even prevent the progression of HIV infection in those of European descent, but accelerate it in people of African descent. Now, this is not a difference in the CCR5 gene itself, but rather a difference in how two different genetic backgrounds respond to the same mutation. In the past, skin color, would have been used as a surrogate to predict outcome. But given what I've just shown you about the imprecision of skin color, especially in the United States, as a proxy for genetic makeup, you can see why biomedical scientists might wish to use more informative genotyping to predict disease progression. It is certain that debates within the scientific community about whether the historic descriptors of race or ethnicity are valid anymore, or indeed ever were, and whether they should be replaced with more robust information about genetic ancestry, those debates will continue. My own view, as I said, is that attempts to stop the progress of science have been remarkably unsuccessful over time. And in my own view, the benefits of understanding the impact of human variation outweigh the risks. But I say this with the specter in the back of my mind of someone speaking from this stage in a hundred years, castigating the scientists of my era for their blindness to the ways in which their scientific findings were used to sustain prejudice and discrimination. How we proceed in this new era, and whether for good or for ill, are now up to all of us, scientists and non-scientists alike. In this regard, the Center for African American Studies is poised to play a critical role in the ongoing debate we must have about the meaning of race in the post-genome era. As a university that prides itself In being in the nation's service, and the service of all nations, we need to be a leading voice in this debate through the scholarship that we produce, the conversations that we stimulate, and the future leaders that we are educating. As a community in which scientists, social scientists, and humanists work and study in close proximity to one another, we can ensure that this discussion as is, is as broad as it absolutely needs to be. As the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. observed, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. And at Princeton, we're in the business of generating light. Thank you for your attention, and thank you to my colleagues in the Center for African American Studies, for the great honor of delivering the Baldwin Lecture. I told Cornell that I would look at him all the time through the lecture to make sure he wasn't falling asleep. <laughs> and I'm very happy to report he did not. Um, Eddie has suggested that if there are any questions, I would be happy uh, to answer them. Um, it's a little hard to see people, particularly in the balcony, with the lights on. But if you could just call out if you have a question or if not. No?
2: Oops.
1: Please, yes. Kim, I think, right? No, it's not Kim. I thought it was Kim Shubley.
2: I, I, I'm, I'm from the public. <laughs> My name is Bonnie. Um, many um, recent um, television programs have focused on the history and the ancestry of Uh, various uh, celebrities and individuals. The genome projects have looked to help define and take a look at um, the migration. Um, As someone who worked in one of the financial services uh, corporations in education and also taught first grade, my concern has always been in looking at people as, um, as individuals who happen to um, incorporate uh, their past and their past generations, and but are still looked at as unique individuals. I guess part of my problem as, a, as, an, as an educator and somebody who thinks a lot about race is how do we help students? How do we help employees? How do we help people learn to balance um, what they feel they are as a part of what has made up their character and become part of their genes with what they are as unique individuals so that they can act on their own conscience and also release um, as, as their own individual um, innovation and creativity and, and productivity and, and help to move this country as a diverse country mm-hmm. forward. So I guess, as president of the university, my question to you is, how do you help students make that balance that they are they are unique, but they are also part of uh, the past hi- social history and and also part of their own um, uh, parental history. I don't even want to use the word race or, or mm-hmm. ethnicity. I, I, because it's just so diverse and it's going to continue to be more diverse going forward.
1: Well, I I think that that Eddie, in his um, introduction, uh, stated uh, the most important thing that we as a university can do, and that is we can have conversations like the one that we are having this afternoon. Uh, We can have them uh, not just in isolated parts of the university, uh, but all over the university. We want our students to reflect on the questions that you have just um, uh, you know, identified and, um, and give them the opportunity, which we believe is extraordinarily important, of confronting uh, what Woodrow Wilson called confronting the other. Um, Many of our students come to this university having lived in communities that are not terribly diverse where they would have had very little opportunity to encounter someone who thought very differently than they did, who practiced religion uh, in a very different way, whose political views were utterly different than their own. And one of the most important things that happens at this university, and, and we do it very deliberately, is we assemble a student body. Uh, that represents the broadest uh, possible diversity, uh, not just in this country, but now in cred- uh, all over the world. And if I had um, one particular goal that I would identify among all the other very laudable goals that we're trying to accomplish in this regard, I would actually uh, paraphrase something that I heard Cornell say um, at a dinner that he and I attended uh, with a group of students, you know, maybe six, seven years ago which is we want students to be able to imagine themselves in someone else's skin. Because only if you are capable of doing that are you going to have the depth of human understanding that will enable you to live in a truly multicultural world. So I think it's a, it's a large task and, and one that we are going about quite deliberately uh, here at Princeton. other questions.
3: Thank you very much, President Tillman. My name's Leah. I'm a senior at Princeton University and a student in the Center for African-American Studies. And I had a question about whether you would ever consider having a distribution requirement that would involve taking a course in African-American studies, African studies, East Asian studies, any of those sort of um, mm-hmm. departments and centers that we have going on on campus. I mean, I have had a great time in the center, and you know, I know there are so many different courses you can take that reach apl- across all sorts of disciplines, but I also have tons of friends who are in different majors who, who find it very easy not to take these sorts of courses.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think our long-term goal is to make it impossible to get through this university, not by requiring it, but by having the kinds of curricular offerings so interesting and so compelling that that you would have to be um, a student who isn't worthy of being admitted to Princeton University uh, to actually uh, get through this university. Um, In other words, I I, I tend to favor always carrots over sticks and um, positive uh, uh, reinforcement rather than negative reinforcement. So that would be my um, that would be the approach that I would take. Any other questions? Yes, up in the, you're gonna have, uh, is there a, oh, there is a microphone in the back. Yeah, up on the balcony. In the South Asian case, I was surprised,
3: to, uh, I can hear you. Um, and I was wondering if that was because of the sample of individuals taken, because medically speaking, um, South Asians do share some diseases, such as sickle cell anemia, with Africans.
1: Yes, and, and that is absolutely the case. Um, and if you, sickle cell is a fascinating example. If you ask, where is sickle cell most prevalent in the world? It actually doesn't track with individual geographic areas. It, tra- it, it tracks wherever there is malaria. And so it has been. It, it's a perfect example of a mutation that's been positively selected. And I know that doesn't, for the geneticists in the room, that doesn't make sense. But it does uh, because if you have one of your two hemoglobin beta genes that have the sickle trait, you are more resistant to malaria. And so that is a that is a, a sort of a genetic variation that tracks with a disease with a mosquito. Uh, Uh, and not with geography. Any other? Yes, another one up in the balcony.
2: Um, Is there research or any progress in research in identifying parts of the genome that identify intelligence, athleticism, or just any human characteristics? (laughs)
1: Um, The answer is no. uh, No studies that have really been successful in that area. And the reason is literally that um, that what studies have been done have been unsuccessful, and the interpretation of that lack of success is that um, traits that are as complex human traits as athleticism or intelligence, and you know we can argue a lot about how to measure intelligence, but those traits are the result of very tiny differences in of among many, many, many genes. And we simply don't have tools right now that can identify all of those differences. Um, So the answer is no. Yes. The balcony really listened. (laughs) I'm very impressed.
3: Hi, President Tillman, thank you very much for your presentation. My name is Jonathan. I'm a senior as well. And my question is also about the, the, the study with the triangles, and specifically the, the South Asian, uh, the, the Indian population mm-hmm. case. Um, I was wondering, since they were confounding in this study, uh, was, is there any possibility that British and European colonialism um, could play any part in that, specifically since there was a lot of uh, shifting toward the European end of that triangle?
1: Well, the interesting thing, if you if you remember the slide, and maybe I can even pull it back up. There it is. Um, the The really interesting thing is is these points were not necessarily only biased in the direction of Europeans, which might have been the result if you uh, f- of your suggestion, but in fact they spread out across uh, the entire sort of domain between the Europeans and the, and the uh, East Asian. And what that's just asses- suggesting is the history of um, that continent. And as you know, there were all kinds of migratory patterns, trading routes, and so on, that were going from Europe to Asia and back again. And, and this is the result, that there was a lot of um, interbreeding, basically. And so, so that's what gives you this picture now. Yes.
3: Hi, uh, my name is Keith Whaler. I'm a visitor at the Center this year, and um, wonderful talk. Um, I, I was also drawn to the, these triangles, and I, I guess I, I'm also drawn to the, the visual sophistication of the sciences over time <laughs> that, that create, all the way back to phrenology and craniolo- craniometry, um, that, that give us entry into, um, a, a really powerful language for thinking about race. Mm-hmm. And although, what I, what I find interesting about this, this triangle is that it's, uh, if I understood your talk, it's based on um, less than one-tenth of 1%. One it's based on a little over 100 um, selected genetic mar- uh, markers.
1: 160 markers 160 in 160 this study. 160 in yeah. this
3: particular study. Yeah. And yet, um, and, and these are particular, I'm uh, interested in how these particular markers are selected. Right. But what's fascinating is how um, you go very quickly from the, the fact that these are really selected markers to the kinds of questions that are being mm-hmm. asked now about racial history, about fundamental differences, right. when in fact, I think the point of your talk is that these are, these are just 160 reference points. Right, right. Uh, But yet, it it provokes questions about what makes Europeans fundamentally different from Asians, and how South Asians fit into this, and I wonder if you can comment on it. It seems to be, on the one hand, the point of your talk is that we need not take this information as seriously as we do, because we can be misguided. On the other hand, we should take it very, very seriously, and I I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that.
1: (laughs) And, in fact, what you've said in, in, in quite a, um, I think, beautiful way is this tension between similarity and difference, right? Because, in fact, uh, and it's not quite a forest in the trees uh, dilemma, but it comes pretty close to a forest in the trees in the following sense. Is that if, if you look across all of the variation in the human genome, The vast majority of them are not group specific, right? So so the variation that exists and evolution is selecting upon even today is is shared across all people. Um, That's the 85 to 90% that is everywhere. And, And what we're looking at here are a carefully hand selected group of places in the genome that allow you to differentiate someone from Europe uh, from somebody in Asia. So, so it, is, it is, as you say, it is this tension between which do you focus on, the, the, common, the commonality that the genome has told us about, about the human species, or the fact that within that commonality, there are subgroups, and we can identify them using that. You know, so you've. I think that tension is absolutely there. The second tension is the tension, as Maynard Olson described it, the commingling of science and social values, with race as its touchdown, and and it was Davenport's down downfall, and and I think what we're trying to do, and what I was trying to raise in this lecture, is that there is nothing that exempts us from making some of the same mistakes, even potentially unconsciously, that were made by our forebears who tried to confront this issue of how to think about people who were different from ourselves. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the most interesting things in um, Stephen Jay Gould's book, The Mismeasure of Man, was a description of a craniometrist named uh, Morton, Samuel Morton, who who, uh, measured the volume of human skulls and uh, concluded from that uh, a sort of a hierarchy with, of course, surprise, 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 he had Europeans at the top with the biggest skulls and he had uh, Africans at the bottom with the smallest skulls. Gould went back and, and took all of Morton's data, which had been carefully preserved by Morton. Morton never hid his data, his measurements. And, and he went back and he re-met, calculated Morton's actual data and showed that, that Morton had selectively chosen skulls so that they would tell the story that he wanted to tell. And and the amazing thing that Gould concluded from this, and I'm not sure I agree with Gould on this matter, by the way. Gould concluded that this was an unconscious act on the part of Morton. Because if Morton knew what he was doing, he would have fudged the data, too, not just left the data out there for anybody to reanalyze. He didn't get what he was doing. So it's that that I think we have to be alert to, and it's why The dialogue that must happen between scientists and social scientists and humanists is so important. Because scientists can be blinded to the implications of their work. And we need this dialogue and we're gonna have it at Princeton. Yes, ma'am. Over here. Hi, thank you so much for a great
3: talk. I just had a, a question. Um, I guess besides looking at the genome to look at differences in disease vulnerability, hmm. what do you think are the real social values of comparing um, genetics and, and race?
1: I think the major value is in um, is in uh, the area of human health. I, I, I think. It's hard for me to say where there are values outside human health, but I think there are tremendous opportunities within the area of health. Um, th- there is so much we still don't understand about some of the most prevalent human diseases. I was talking to somebody this afternoon on the phone about Alzheimer's disease. I mean, the, the amount we don't know about that disease, even to this day, um, it, is so much greater than what we now understand about it. And, while the genome is not going to be the only answer, and, and the uh, geneticists who touted the genome as the answer for everything, I think just were overblown and overstated the case, um, it is going to inform a lot of the way in which the treatment and the, uh, the, the prevention of disease is going to progress in the next 100 years. So I think it's going to be very important. Um, And it's the primary value of having sequenced the genome. Yes. One more? Yes, ma'am.
2: Yeah. Um, Hi, President Tillman.
1: Um, In the next week or so, um, I think we're all gonna get a form in the mail from the census, which is probably the largest effort to collect data on race that goes on. Um, And given what you've said about the genetics of race, does it really make any sense anymore for any of us yeah. to check off a single box?
2: As yeah. opposed, no
1: really, no. as opposed to maybe a spectrum. Yep. Um, and and what, does that, what does that mean for, I guess measurement of race in this country? And, and, and in fact an example that I did not use but I could have used in the talk is the, the, the box that says Hispanic. Hispanic has no meaning. At the level of uh, the genome, whatsoever, Hispanic means you speak Spanish, as far as I can tell, um, and so defining it separately uh, is, from my perspective, from the perspective of somebody who thinks about genetics, it has no meaning whatsoever. So, so I think there's a there's a big spectrum here and. You know, whether we can get to a place where that just simply isn't a, a useful identifier uh, is an interesting question. I got my, my letter yesterday, actually. Yeah. So I think Ed, Eddie suggested that was the last uh, question. And I, once again, I want to thank you all for coming this evening.
0: Thank you. Um, On the back of your programs, there's a list of um, uh, our, our, our events and our upcoming events. We hope you will join us. And more specifically, we hope you will become a walking partner of the center. Thank you so much and see you next year.